a Podcast One production. Learning a bit about how our politics work through this series, I can't help but think of a cake. The top gets most of the attention, the stuff that happens in Canberra with the Prime Minister and federal members and senators. But there are layers, many layers that make up the cake and different parts that make it taste okay or just dead set horrible. Think of one of those major layers as the state governments. I'm Adam Peacock, and what I want to know now on Peacock Politics is how crucial is that layer? What do state governments mean in the grand scheme of the Australian political cake? To help explain it, a former Premier of Western Australia, Jeff Gallup, was in charge in the West for nearly five years and is now Emeritus Professor at Sydney University when it comes to politics. Jeff, thanks so much for your time. A pleasure to be here. Explain in basic terms, if you could, how our system came to being with state governments and a federal government. We'll go back uh, to the formation of the uh, Australian colony in New South Wales and the developments that followed on from that in what became six colonies. Uh, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia, Western Australia. Western Australia was the Swan River Colony, of course. That was the title uh, given. So you've got all of those colonies. They're developing their own systems, uh, their own systems of government. And, you know, in some cases, uh, very, very uh, democratic systems of government when you put it into an international. And and over here in New South Wales, we, we reflect upon the contribution of someone like Henry Parks to that idea that there should be democracy. So you've got six colonies, you've got six systems of government, uh, and at the top of the pile, of course, is the British government and the Queen, uh, uh, the, the monarch at the top, Queen Victoria, of course, mm. in, in the 19th century. And then within Australia, there's developing a, a view that we need to come together These uh, six colonies are separate in some ways and different in some ways, but really they're unified by a common bond, uh, a common history in many ways, and we need to come together to form a nation. Then the big question comes, well, if you're going to form a nation, what will the national government look like? And, And the fact of the matter is you already had six governments, so it was impossible really to get unification if all power went to the centre, if all power went to the majority. So the founding fathers of the Australian Constitution back in the uh, 1890s, 1880s and 1890s when this first came up, were looking for a solution. And their eyes went over to the United States of America where they had developed a federal system of government, where they had a national government and they had state governments and a constitution to define the powers of both of those layers of government. So there was a need to unify, there was a need to respect the history of all of the different states The model uh, came across from the United States, uh, the model of federalism, where you have state governments elected and you have uh, a national government elected and and the powers of the two are determined by the constitution. So that's that's the background. The Australian nation, it's highly unlikely that it would have really come together without that federal concept. A lot of pride in each of the the colonies for what they were doing. Uh, They needed to protect their interests, you know, and in Take WA small population compared to the eastern states and they're worried that the numbers over there would determine the outcomes and people in West Australia would miss out. So that's the background. Thank you. That makes it crystal clear. So right now then, put it in modern terms, how does, in reference to what was set up back then, how does the power balance sit between the the federal government and the state governments? Well, it's interesting. Uh, Australian federalism 
has certainly changed in the 20th century. More power and more authority has gone to the Commonwealth government. And in some ways, more so than even in uh, the United States where you have a directly elected president with a lot of executive power, Hmm. uh, the states still play a very prominent and important role in American politics and the the Constitution defends them, as we saw with the Electoral College vote. And, and, you know, that some of those small states get quite a significant vote in determining who's going to be the president. Yeah. Uh, In Australia, we've had... What, what some writers have called, and I think it's a good description, creeping centralism based upon these factors. One, the High Court of Australia has tended to favour the Commonwealth in its decisions about where power should lie between national and state government. It's tended to be more centralist. The most recent and significant example was the industrial relations legislation where the High Court ruled that the Commonwealth prevailed in that area. But if you look at the original uh, statement of our constitution, it was that each state would have their own system of industrial relations and they differ. Mm. The second reason is money, that in under our system- What a shock, more, money's involved. More, more and more money uh, found its way into the coffers of the federal government and- they needed to spend it. Now, they have their defence responsibilities, the post office responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera, foreign policy, overseas representation, and they had more money than they need for their traditional functions. So they started to go into new areas like education, traditionally state government-based, and the Commonwealth said, well, we'll give you some money, but if you want the money, you've got to do this. Remember the controversy about having Australian flagpoles, you know, back in John Howard's time. He said, we'll give you the money, as long as you put a flagpole up, you know, in, in your school, or so long as you follow a certain uh, testing system. Is that why there's flagpoles at every school? Uh, well, there already pretty well was anyway, was you know. Very, I remember remember it well from Beachlands Primary School in Geraldton, Western Australia. We, we had our flag. But um, so power due to the Constitution being interpreted in a certain way, power due to having more money than you need, and then saying we'll give you money but subject to conditions. Mm. Uh, so... Thirdly, I guess, generally speaking, national governments around the world have increased their power uh, because there's more global connections and you need to have a, a good base upon which you can conduct your affairs with other countries. Uh, and uh, you, need, you need a strong national government in, in order to, defa- to protect your national interests within the global scene. How does it affect, though, our day-to-day life, just average Joes and Jills in the street, if the state government loses its kind of say, if you like, in the balance. Well, at the moment, I, I would I would argue the states have still got enormous power and authority in the system, but but the, that power has been diminished. This is what we lose if we went to a completely centralised system, and the states did not have the constitutional authority we've given them under our our system. I, I think we'd l- lose out. Let me use two examples: um, the Northern Territory and the Australian Capital Territory are not states. They have parliaments and they make decisions, but should their decisions not be according to the views of the national government, they can be overridden by the national government. You might recall the Northern Territory introduced euthanasia legislation some time ago and the Commonwealth ruled it out. Mm. So the people of the Northern Territory wanted to have it, but they couldn't get it. Secondly, in the, in the Australian Capital Territory, they're moving for marriage equality, uh, and and again it was ruled out by the Commonwealth. So each of the states, however, have this power to be different. 
Mm. Let me just run through some differences. In Western Australia, no poker machines in pubs uh, uh, and, and clubs in Western Australia. That'd no be, poker machines. That'd be nice. And, and you know, it, it, it had definitely has an impact on the health of the people. Uh, you've got an injecting, uh, injecting centre here, a supervised injecting centre in New South Wales, now one in Victoria. Uh, you've had a very tough container deposit legislation in South Australia. Oh, so the, the states, 10 cents for the Coke bottle. That's right, thing. you know, and that's now spread around. So you can get experimentation. You can get difference. And and that adds to the vitality, I think, of, of public policymaking in Australia because of federalism. Just on the power, though, but back to those issues that, say, the Northern Territory wanted to bring in, like euthanasia. What yeah. if WA wanted to bring it in, given it's a state, not a territory? Well, they've done it. They've done it. Okay. Western Australia has it. Uh, it's passed through the parliament, uh, uh, whereas in, in in the territories you couldn't do that because it. it's okay. it's this by having the power to do things given to you by a constitution that can only be changed by referendum, that gives that gives a lot of power to the states under our system. Even though there's been creeping centralism, mm. we've still got a lot of federalism in our system, as we see in terms of the COVID debate. Mm. Just on, and we will get to mm. how mm. things have played out in a pandemic. Just on the money issue, point two, you say there, how do the states get money? Do they have to suck up to the federal government who collect all the taxes with through the Australian tax office? Is that the main source of revenue that that's gets a, split that's, up? That's a very delicate way you put it, suck up to the federal government. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's exactly right. There was a, there was a, there was an effort to solve this issue with the goods and services tax. Yep. Now, John Howard was having a lot of trouble getting that through the parliament. In the end, uh, uh, for two reasons he got it through. One was the Democrats came in and gave him some support with some concessions on, uh, you know, remember those concessions on food and whatever, and, and, and education, I think it was. And secondly, he said all the money will go to the states. All of it. Uh, all of it. All of it goes to the states, determined, uh, and the amount to go to one state as opposed to another determined by a formula. Mm. And, you know, there's been a lot of debate uh, about that issue. So the Commonwealth... In exchange for that, the states gave away a lot of taxes. They they abolished a lot of taxes. Now, if you abolish a tax and then give power to another level of government to 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 supplement you in ways that will mm. to compensate you for losing those taxes, there's a problem. You've you've given your power away. Mm. I mean, as soon as you do that, mm. you, you've reduced your power. So the you way it's it worked is the GST ultimately the money goes to the uh, to the states. Uh, and so far, the formula's worked well, even though there's been differences between the states on 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 the impact. And Western Australia, for example, at one point was getting a very, very small take of the amount of money raised in the state. But the Commonwealth now has control over that. And, and over time, what you'll see is is slowly but surely their power will be further enhanced because they have that GST. It's a Commonwealth tax. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. What about... Who relies on who to function properly? The functionality of Australian politics, the, the elected officials doing what the elected officials are meant to be doing, but you've got this these people in Canberra doing what they're doing overall and you've got people in the different states, like you've got an energy minister yeah, in every yeah. state and you've got a national energy minister, yeah. for instance. The, this, this goes to the heart of the issue. We have federalism and we have central and governments and we have uh, one central government and the, and, the, and the states. How do they get together? to make our system function. Mm. Now, if you look at Australian history, there've been some very, very positive periods where the states and the Commonwealth have agreed a lot. 
And they've used that agreement to bring about quite a bit of change. In the, in the 1980s and early 1990s, for example, there was a, a strong move to make the Australian economy more competitive and to do that to bring more competition into the economy. And the states, some Labor, some Liberal, and the national government, at that time a Labor government, agreed to, to make that happen. What was crucial, though, if a state government undermine some of the monopolies that it had, for example, in electricity generation and mm. transmission and whatever, uh, and, and they lost revenue, the, the Commonwealth had this scheme where they would supplement. So the states were more relaxed about doing the change because their loss of revenue uh, was supplement uh, that was compensated for by the federal government. So uh, how do you do it? Then in the early 21st century, there was an effort to bring about a reform it was based upon the principle that the Commonwealth would take away some of the strings that they'd attached to Commonwealth funding. They'd take away uh, uh, those strings from the system and, and the states would be evaluated on their performance. Now, I happen to be uh, the Deputy Chair of the Australian Reform, COAG Reform Council, Council of Australian Government, which was, was to report to the people on the performance of each of the states. So they preserved their autonomy but the accountability came by reporting on their performance. Now, Tony Abbott came in and abolished all of that, uh, so that was the end of that system. So at various times, there has been an effort to bring the two sides together. Mm. Uh, in recent days, of course, we've seen that again. Um, not easy to do. I mean, I, I, I was West Australian Premier. I'm very conscious of the fact the people that elected me were the people of WA. They weren't the people of, you know, Greater Sydney. Mm. And so you've got, to, you've got to be in there fighting for your... Uh, your electors. And sometimes what the other states may want to do may not be in your interests. Uh, for example, I didn't accept the water strategy that was put forward by the Howard government. I felt that it was too based on Eastern states issues and, it, it, and not enough respect was being shown for the issue we had in WA, which was drying aquifers and we needed to do things about it. So I, I didn't sign the agreement. And it was, so what was that to give more access to waters for farm, water two, to the farmers? Two, in there, No, there, there, there were two issues. One was we have a lot of water supply in WA coming from aquifers. They were mm. drying up. I mean, we faced a crisis. Uh, we went for desalination and we felt that if the Commonwealth Government's going to spend money on the Murray-Darling, and by the way, we have no problem with that. That's very important for the nation. We agreed with that. But why was it that no focus was given on, on, on the issue of Western Australia and what we needed to do? So we went it alone, and, and ironically, probably because we went it alone and didn't have the Commonwealth interfering, uh, we produced a good result and probably a better result than if they had agreed to, to be part of our system. You talk of the the toing and froing between federal and, and state governments on, on policy and how it's all structured. And then you throw in personalities as well oh. and just people. People ruin everything, have the opportunity to ruin everything. But on the flip side, they can make a good idea great. With the personalities between, like, for instance, you were WA Premier, so you were obviously in charge over there in WA, but was there any of this from the PM at the time, John Howe's asked? It's okay, Jeff. Like I'm actually the prime minister. You're just the premier. So you know, is there a bit of like federal government? Oh, I'm better than you type thing. If you're in state government, well, it's 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 a very very good point you make. This is an observation I've made about politics. I had a very short role in uh, local government before I went into state, uh, and everyone at the Commonwealth level, they think they're the best. 
You know, <laughs> they're the national government. They're the smart people of Australia. These silly state politicians don't know what they're talking about. Then you go into the state parliament. They say, these local councillors, they're all hopeless. They don't know what they're talking about. You know, we're the best. And you get those sort of prejudices, you know. There's built a hierarchy. Into, and there is a hierarchy of prejudice. It really, it really does exist. And it's silly because, you know, some of those local councillors went on to become state ministers. Some of those local councillors went on to become national politicians. Some uh, uh, state politicians went become national pol- uh, politicians. Uh, they're all the same. But that prejudice can make it hard. You, it, it's like you take your eyes off the ball, you know, and you're dealing, you, you, your pride and your ego is getting in the way of proper decision making. So you, your point about character, personality and its role in politics, very important. Uh, and, you know, I had a very good friend who was a senator from West Australia. And when I said to him, I'm going into politics, he said, remember this, never assume rationality. You know, human beings are human beings, you know, and, and and you're dead right. So bringing this, the states and the Commonwealth together to try to get a national approach to an issue that needs a national approach, such as when the, when the terrorism thing came, we, we developed a, a national approach to dealing with that. Obviously, uh, with the whole question of climate, we haven't quite got there yet on that one, which mm. I think is a concern. Uh, on the On the pandemic, interestingly... We haven't been perfect, but actually, overall, we've come out pretty well in Australia. Even though you you see on the surface, Mm. you see Western Australia and New South Wales squabbling or Victoria and New South Wales, New South Wales and Queensland, and then more recently, South Australia had a crack. You know, they were all, it looked as though it was all fighting and whatever. But underneath that, the policy positions, even though they're not all agreed upon, have produced pretty good results. You've led me in beautifully to the pandemic, which I was going to bring up, so State politics v federal politics in a pandemic. What has it shown up? Well, it's shown that that the whole question of health is probably uppermost on the minds of people. Now, uh, as you know, that's not the only issue that we have to address. There's the issue of employment and all those sort of things. But I think if you look look into it, people want their governments to make that the number one. You know, they don't want this... Uh, virus in our community, mm. and th- and that makes quarantine very important. And you know, there's been some quarantine breaks, as you know, mm. and, and that they're the ones that have led to the problems that I- that we've seen from place to place. So I think the political lesson I would draw, if I was in the game of politics, would be that the electors want governments to take this health issue seriously. They look at America, they don't like it. They look at Britain, they don't like it. You, you know, one in eight British people have had the COVID. You know, mm. uh, and and so that's the first thing. And on the, the jockeying you see between the states over issues, underneath it all, they're, they're, they're very conscious of the fact that they don't want spread. They don't want community spread. Even in New South Wales, where they, they haven't taken the big border protection position, hmm. they've certainly had the hotspot position. And that, if you're living in the northern suburbs in more recent times, that that was restrictive. <laughs> Tell me about it. I didn't right, have a Christmas after s- <laughs> someone at the Avalon RSL decided to lick a dance floor, and next thing I know, I'm having Christmas by That's myself right. just well, with the kids go. and not with the grandparents. <laughs> so anyway, that that happens. Just on the order, okay. There's a really good example within the pandemic, looking forward, and this will always be an example moving forward about states and federal government who has control. The state governments can just put up the border straight away. They can do the the Trump, if you like, the invisible the invisible wall goes up, bang, you're not coming in. And the states almost become six different countries 
again, or, or eight different countries if you take into account the ACT and also Northern Territory. Is that fair enough? Does the federal government have power to go over the top of this or that's how it all works in the Constitution? Well, I, 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 I think what I, what, I, what I think I'd preface my comment to you by saying is the Commonwealth actually does have a lot of power here under this heading quarantine. That is totally a Commonwealth's responsibility. If you think about it, if the Commonwealth really focused on that to make sure that that we, we managed entry into Australia properly and there weren't these breakouts because we've seen some breakouts where they've devolved the power to, to do the quarantining to the state as they did in Victoria. Remember mm. the problem we had there. Uh, I, I, I think that plus the states getting the, the advice they have and, 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 and on occasions using the border protection uh, a hardline border protection strategy as well. That to me is a better solution because you, you you'll take people with you. I mean, for example, the Commonwealth for a period of time in just take Western Australia, my uh, home base, for many many years, there was pressure for them to really open up early, and and there was a debate going on, and and, and Mark McGowan took a very strong view of it, backed up by the population. Now, if he had have said at that time, we'll just, uh, I think there would have been a lot of messiness in, in terms of the way that issue would have been handled. What I'm saying here, Adam, I think it, to put it in, a, in a simple terms, is the Commonwealth might be tempted to try and take over, but they've got to, they've got to temper that temptation hmm. by realising this is a team business and the states are part of the, you know, they're part of the team. So I, pr- I think Morrison's played that pretty carefully, you know. He's not trying to make the states offside. There was a period when he could have done that. Hmm. There was that period, you know, when it looked as though he was going for a laissez-faire approach, which, but but he didn't. He pulled back on the advice he got. So on terms of federal-state relations in the pandemic, I think there is a temptation to say, oh, the Commonwealth should come in and we, we, we under, uh, undermine the position of all the states and have one big market and, and you can move around and you can do all of this. Uh, I, I think that would have created a lot of tension within our political system that would not have, would not have uh, helped us. Do we need all these layers in Australian politics if you throw in local government councils into the equation as well? I think it's, if you look at Australia historically, we've done pretty well as a nation. And interestingly, you know, when, when you go and look at other countries uh, and systems of government, there's not many countries that don't have those three layers. They operate differently. I mean, a lot of mm. countries have much more power to the central government and their regional governments are more dependent, you know, on the, on the Commonwealth. And pretty well all of them have their local governments as well. Some don't, you know, Singapore, you know, very small country, you know, so the small countries don't necessarily. Those that have complete power in the centre, I'm not sure they, they, they're they in a position to do as well as a federal system where you can get that dynamism from the local. I mean, it's much better to have the opportunity for change in your system than having to wait for the Commonwealth government to change. If you look at issues like the one I was involved in for a long time, the Republic, or you look at the issue of the voice for Indigenous people, or you look at the issue of a charter of rights. I mean, it's impossible to get these things up nationally. But Victoria has a charter of rights. A lot of the states have voice partnerships with their Indigenous communities. We certainly worked on that basis with ATSIC when I was the Premier in Western Australia. But, but if it was all Commonwealth, it'd be much harder to get flexibility innovation into the system. Does that get lost a bit then if the states are doing their, these things in those areas that their people agree with because they're elected governments yeah, yeah. and if their people didn't agree, they wouldn't be elected? 
but it, it seems like a lot of the noise in commentary is about what the federal government does with those issues and a lot of pressure on the Prime Minister to do certain things and he or she is getting pulled in every single direction, whereas it's happening at the States. See, see I, I think, I think we're, we're, we're stretching it too far. If, if the Commonwealth was less interventionist but more strategic, I think we'd get better outcomes. Look, the Commonwealth's trying to do too much. I mean, in areas like education, health, some of the traditional areas, even in some infrastructure areas now, the Commonwealth, I think, has overplayed its hand. And, and I don't personally see benefits out of that. I can't see where the benefits come from a lot of that. Leave it to the States. Look, Canada's a much more federal country than Australia is, much mm. more federal. And, 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 and you know, they, they do pretty well. Uh, I, I think the dynamism of federalism shouldn't be lost. And uh, there, is a, there, is a, there is a creeping centralism that could take that out of our system. Mm. And, and, I, and I think we'd be the losers. We do need that state-based dynamism. It makes it a bit messy. Mm. Makes it a bit messy. Uh, it means, you know, you're going to have more argument. You're going to have one state not liking what, what another state does, et cetera. Uh, but it's better to have that messiness than to have a, a sort of centralism that, that is sclerotic, you know. Well, mess is the sign of a genius, is it not? I mean, Albert Einstein's desk was always a, a tip, so I might tell you something. Mess, yeah. is, mess is okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't I, – I do believe within that mess an, an effort should be made to bring about some national consensus on big issues. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've got to deal with the international – political environment. It's changing. The China involved, you know, all of, we've got to have a position on it. Mm. Secondly, we've got to have a position on climate. You can't run away from it. You, you have to have a position on it. And, and and that means trying to get a consensus. So I'm all for getting consensus, but you, you can't impose it. You can't, you've got to develop it, you know, from the bottom up. And then, uh, you know, Hawke, we, we were very sad when he passed away last year, Bob Hawke, mm. but, you know, he was a master at getting consensus around big issues. Uh, and uh, let, let's hope that the new president of the USA, Biden, who's got huge experience in politics, is, is, can do the same thing as well. Mm. With reference to Western democracies and how our system works, have we got the best of it or should we make tweaks to maybe make no, it look I, like the others? I think there's many reforms we can make. I'm, I'm, I'm involved with a, a, a foundation called New Democracy and, and what we advocate, we advocate for citizen juries, you know the jury principle. You randomly select people, mm. they come in there, they consider the evidence and they make a decision. Uh, you can have citizens' assemblies. A country that's been very active in this space is Ireland. Mm. Uh, they've had a number of big citizens' assemblies, randomly selected Irish people, plus a group of politicians, two-thirds random, one-third politician, and they've made big decisions on their constitution. Really? Yeah, and and a lot more involvement. Now, now take Ireland. This interest, Ireland interests me. They've got a coalition government. Uh, this coalition government that came out, the last election was very messy. You know, there were a lot of different implicate. The two big parties in Ireland that historically hate each other. I mean, you know, it, it goes back to the Civil War and, you know, the, the, the conflict between the two sides in Ireland, the, those that uh, wanted a, a measured approach to independence and those who wanted to go to war against the British, you know, that sort of stuff. They came together with the Greens to form a coalition and they've agreed upon a whole lot of things, including on climate 
including having some citizens' assemblies to deal with some tricky issues like drug policy, for example. Mm. They're going to have it. Now, to me, our system needs this energy. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. In Australia, there is there is a lot of conflict going on that's not very constructive. I mean, conflict can be constructive. Person X says Y, person B says C, they have a big argument. We work it out, we come up with a better solution because both sides have been listened to. Where one side won't listen, as you pointed out, they have their view and they're not going to change it, mm. you can't have democracy. And so we've got to break this. And one way to break it is to, is to reform our democracy, still have representative democracy, but back it up with a lot more random selection and deliberation on big issues. Now, it requires the politicians to give up a little bit of their status, a little bit of their authority. <laughs> you see, sometimes giving up some power creates more power. And, you know, I'm a great um, advocate for the thinking of uh, Nelson Mandela. He's a brilliant man. And he, he was in prison and he looked out there and he saw the situation. He said, look, one of two things is going to happen in South Africa. Either we're going to have a peaceful move into democracy or we're going to have a bloody revolution. And he said, we want to move peacefully. And he stood very strongly for talking to the enemy. I mean, the apartheid regime was a shocking regime. He talked to them. He went in there and said, look, we've got to solve this. And he won their confidence. Now, you know, he, he's, he's in a different class, you know. I mean, he's right up there, you know. But see the principle. He said, don't lock yourself into your own position. Get the other side in with you and then you can get a solution. In his case, that would be peaceful. That's, we're not doing enough of this. We're not doing enough of it. How does that work at state government level with, you know, certain states have liberal or national governments, others have the other side of politics, Labor governments, and they all come together and they bounce ideas off each other? Does it work like that or is it very parochial? Well, I think one of the, one of the problems we've got at the moment is that the centre of politics has been hollowed out. I mean, if you look at Australian politics, you've got, you know, you've got, say, the left, you'd, you'd put the Green Party, you know, and then you've got the centre-left, you say, the Labor Party. You've got the centre-right, which is traditionally the Liberal Party, and then you've got the right wing, uh, the Nationals, in more contemporary terms, much more right wing than they used to be, and the right wing rump that's in the party. And, and they've hollowed out the centre a bit. By hollowing out the centre, it's harder to get this agreement. In America, the centre, as you know, is has just come back into power. But it's shaky because the division between the right wing in America and 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 the left wing is is fundamental. That's not good. I mean, you've got to have some terms of agreement, uh, and and I think getting that is not easy. Someone has to come out of the box and try and make it happen, uh, and that's where the hawk type situation came in. With the states, though, having those differing ideas and you know being pulled in different directions and hollowing out the centre, do they then come together a little bit in the sense that they are all the state governments, regardless of what side of politics, operating in a way that makes sure that they're all collectively looked after by... Yeah, it depends. ...the sugar daddy yeah, up yeah, top, that's there, right. the federal it, government. It, it, it depends on what the issue is. I mean, if the issue is one that has the potential to undermine the position of states generally, usually they'll come together. But this is what might happen. Okay, let's say it's a, an issue about the constitution. The federal government want to change the constitution. The states say, "Ooh, I don't like that idea mm. because, you know, that's going to lead to more power to the Commonwealth, less to us. And then the Commonwealth says, how are we going to get? So the Commonwealth goes to one of the state premiers. You know, come over here. Mm. 
look, if you support this, you know, we'll give you that. And, and, and before you know it, the unity's broken. <laughs> so for the states to do what you're saying, they've got to be unified. And, and generally speaking, they're not easily unified on money because they want more than the other one got, you know, et cetera. Sure. But on, on principle, they might be unified. But the Commonwealth, because of this money factor, they've always got this whip hand, you know, they've always yeah. got this ability to tempt one of the premiers to go outside the, the agreement and to get a little bit extra. It sounds like me with my kids. Like I'm always saying, if you want to walk there, that's fine. If not, do what I say, otherwise I'll give you a lift. So <laughs> exactly. It's exactly and, the same and, principle. And, and, and you, this, this is going on all the time within the mm. system. You know, there's no such thing as perfect rationality, but we should we should seek better results. And, and in Australia at the moment, I, I, I don't see it. I don't see enough of an attempt to bring people together on, on these big issues like climate. One thing we haven't brought up on this series so far is the Republic. And I'll ask you a question yep. with reference to this particular subject, state and uh, Commonwealth governments. Yep. You being a big supporter of Australia being a republic, yep. would that change much if we did become a republic in the way that our political system works with state and yep. federal government? Well, it, it could, but it would depend on the model chosen. So, so I think my answer to your question is, I think it's highly unlikely that that would happen because the states will be, hopefully, and I, I think they would be, vigilant on this. So if there's a move to a republic seriously taken, you know, where you're developing a model, that model would have to reflect uh, our federal system. And, and, it, and it can. I mean, you, you know, it's quite possible for that uh, to, be, to, to happen. There's no reason to change what we've got. Well, I, I think the big, Westminster, yeah, the Westminster system's served us pretty well. Mm. Uh, I'll go to Ireland again, right? Ireland coming out of uh, British rule. What sort of a system are we going to have? And they said very brilliantly, I think, they said, well, you know, the parliament's a good way of doing things. You know, you get the you get your prime minister, et cetera. But, you know, we, we want a president that represents our people and we want that elected. We want it elected. So they've got an elected position at the top with specific powers in the constitution and then you've got the parliament does all, all the business of politics. That's the sort of model that I would have in, in, in my mind for an Australian republic. And, and each of the states would have their own mechanisms to deal with those issues, just as they have now. You know, the upper houses of all the states aren't the same. They're, they're, in Tasmania, they have proportional representation. Hmm. You can have differences, but within the framework of a republic, I don't think it's appropriate to have the monarch of another country, the head of state of Australia. It's 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 It takes something away, I think, from our spirit of independence. It takes something away from our constitution because there are a lot of clauses in the constitution that shouldn't be there that relate to the power of the Queen, you know, in our system. They could be taken out without the Queen going, of course. You could adopt that approach. But to me, Australia's become too frightened. They, they won't take any risks on these issues. Hmm. And, and and I think we've we've driven the, the car of government into a ghetto. You know, we find it very hard to get out. WA's tried to get out before, become the People's uh, Republic now, of WA. Let me, let me, remember I said I had a friend when I went into politics and the friend said to me, uh, never assume rationality. Now, yeah. cop this. <laughs> In Western Australia, they had a referendum on whether Western Australia should leave the Commonwealth and form a separate nation. The referendum was passed and at the same election, the political party that was against the referendum won government. How do you grab that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, look, I think, I think WA, there's a bit of a secession movement, but it, it's, mainly, it's, it's mainly a cry for 
respect rather than a cry for independence. Eastern Coast bias that always exists. I hear it all the time. So. Well, I mean, it's, you know, when I grew up, you know, who, who am I, you know, I started off with the West Australian cricket team, you know, the, the wonderful team that emerged as a powerhouse in Australian cricket. Uh, there was football, Australian rules football. As you know, we're not rugby types over in the West. Mm. Uh, and, and how um, our state teams used to play these wonderful games. There has been a tend- tendency to sort of a more centralisation of, of sport, as we see with the AFL, you know. Mm. But, you know, the Eagles and the Dockers, there's still a sense of local Western Australianism, you know, in the support base. Identity. And there will always be state identities, but we're all as one. We're all Australians at the moment, so getting on just fine. Jeff Gallup, thank you so much for trying to cut through all the issues about state v federal government and explain it in clear and crystal terms. Thank you for your time on Peacock Politics. Look, look, thanks for the opportunity to talk about something I I really believe in. Thank you. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Tina Matilov. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.